Hello and welcome to the Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Revelation chapter 21 The New Jerusalem Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne, saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshippers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. Then, one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come with me, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper as clear as crystal. The city wall was broad and high with twelve gates guarded by twelve angels and the names of the twelve tribes of Israel were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side, east north, south and west. The wall of the city had twelve foundation stones and on them were written the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates and its walls. When he measured it, he found it was square, as wide as it was long. In fact, its length 
and width and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick, according to the human standard used by the angel. The wall was made of jasper and the city was pure gold, as clear as glass. The wall of the city was built on foundation stones, inlaid with twelve precious stones. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were made of pearls, each gate from a single pearl, and the main street was pure gold, as clear as glass. I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honour into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Well, Revelation chapters 18 to 20 describe the consequences of the last judgment for the devil, uh, the two beasts, and all who have worshipped and followed them. They are thrown into the lake of fire. Now with the words, then I saw, a new vision begins. The last vision of the letter, and it covers the last two chapters and describes the positive benefits of the last judgment for Christ's followers and for the rest of creation. It's the future to which all creation has been and is heading, a future in which everything that is opposed to God in creation and within our own lives ceases to exist. A future in which the Bible's vision of the people of God as uh, a new humanity is fully realised. A future centred on the presence of God and our home with him in a renewed creation. What John sees in this vision is unlike the terrifying visions uh, he'd seen previously. Uh, as the old Don Francisco song puts it, this vision is like the, the unfolding of the answer to all our hopes and prayers and dreams. It's worth noting that this final vision of heaven uh, doesn't picture the popular caricature of people sitting on clouds playing harps for all eternity. 
but you know cultural stereotypes have a powerful and lasting impact on how we think uh, and those stereotypes really affect how we think about the future. So today I want to wander through this vision and explore seven things that are actually not in this vision of the future. Firstly, in verse 1, we are told that in the new creation, there is no sea. Now, the apparent lack of a sea may be something of a disappointment for people who uh, love a day at the beach. However, this statement is uh, more symbolic rather than literal. From the very opening verses of the Bible, the sea is used as a metaphor for the forces of chaos, forces that seek to return the world into the void of nothingness. As uh, John Walton notes, this was a common belief in the ancient world. He writes, in the ancient Near East, the existence of chaos was a central concern. Within the cosmos, the raging sea and darkness are the forces of chaos. In Revelation, uh, the sea represents the, the origin of cosmic evil uh, and the pagan nations who persecute God's people. It's the place of the dead, the location of global idolatrous trade, as well as an actual body of water in the present creation. So G.K. Beale is right to say that all five ideas are encapsulated in that phrase that the sea was also gone. He writes, that is uh, with when the new creation comes, there will be no longer be any threat from Satan, threat from rebellious nations or death ever again in the new world, so that there is no room for the sea as a place of the dead. There will also be no more idolatrous trade practice using the sea as its main avenue. Even the perception of the sea as a murky, unruly part of God's creation is no longer appropriate in the new cosmos since the new cosmos is to be characterised by peace. Then in verse 4 we are told that in the new creation there are no tears, death, mourning, crying or pain. This is a fulfilment of the prophecy of Isaiah 25 and 8 and 65, 17 to 19. You know, you don't have to be a student of uh, human history to know that uh, tears and death, mourning, crying and pain, that these things have all been a constant in human experience, regardless of age, gender, race, nationality or time period that, that humans have lived in. We have all know the experience of these things. It's very much part of, of our human existence. And certainly folks over the last two years uh, know all too well the reality of these things, uh, given the number of people who have suffered loss uh, over this pandemic. At the beginning of the 20th century, uh, technological and scientific advances fed a, a widespread belief in human progress, that, that the idea that humanity was just progressing forward, getting better and better, that we were leaving behind the primitive past and that our scientific and technological discoveries would lead to a, a great utopia uh, of, of uh, social perfection and all our problems and difficulties all our strifes and all our woes would all be done away with uh, in, in the future. 
But that dream was shattered uh, in 1914 when the so-called civilised nations of the world went to war with one another using scientific and technological advances to bring death and mourning and crying and pain on a global scale. And the years since then have not been any better. Technology, um, technology advances, but people remain the same. We simply cannot imagine a world in which these painful realities do not exist, no matter how much we might long for such a world. And whilst I believe wholeheartedly in good works and deeds of kindness and the power of love and working to make life better for everyone, it's actually not within human ability to create such a world. Notice, however, that the first thing John tells us about the new creation is that it comes from God. What we cannot do, God does for us. And so God himself says, look, I am making everything new. We should also note that in the new creation, uh, tears, death, mourning, crying and pain are not just gone. They are gone forever. The very world that we all long for is the very world that God promises to give us in the future. In verse 8 we are told that in the new creation there are no human character traits and behaviours that are inconsistent with the kingdom of God. Specifically John says that cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshippers and all liars will not participate in the new creation. Now, while some of those categories are unsurprising because they're, they're found in uh, many of the so-called vice lists that occur in the New Testament, uh, as Mitchell Reddish notes, several of the sinful actions included in this list would have had uh, particular relevance for John's uh, situation. The Greek word that's translated as cowards refers to those with empty faith. Um, the, the word that, that's translated as faith um, more correctly means allegiance. So cowards are people who have failed in their allegiance, they've failed in their faith. Uh, and this is strengthened by the word un, for unbelievers, which is used in Mark's Gospel to refer to those, sometimes the disciples, who have little or no faith. With that in mind, those particular two groups uh, are likely a reference not to unbelieving pagans who have rejected the gospel of Jesus, who practice idolatry openly, but rather to the churches of Asia Minor to whom John was writing. Each one of those congregations was under pressure from the Roman Empire and its Babylonness that permeated the culture. And many Christians were tempted to either compromise with idolatry, to have worship Jesus and have a little bit of idolatry on the side, or to abandon their faith altogether. And throughout this letter, and especially in chapters 2 and 3, these congregations have been called to endurance and faithfulness. John is reminding his readers here that, as Reddish puts it, the rewards of God are for those who do not yield to the charms and threats of the beast. 
in Jesus' message to the church in Philadelphia, a message that would be read to all the churches. This was a circular letter. Jesus said, All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven and from my God. This is still another call to endurance and faithfulness. And that call is a call to us who live in the times that we live in today. In verse 22, we are told that in the new creation, there is no temple. John looks and he sees all these wonderful things, but he doesn't see a temple. For John and some of his readers, this would have come as something of a shock. For the temple had been at the very centre of the national life and worship of Israel. And its destruction by Titus in 70 AD was a national disaster from which the Jews have never recovered. The expectation that there would be a temple in uh, was that there would be a temple in heaven. Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48 describe that temple in great detail, revealing that the temple, which in Ezekiel's day had been destroyed by the Babylonians, would be restored when God came again in all his glory. So why does John not see a temple in the new creation? Well, if you've been following this series of signposts, you'll know that by now all numbers in Revelation are symbolic. And uh, chapters 21 verses 16 to 17 gives us the exact measurements of the city, the new Jerusalem that comes down uh, as part of the new creation. They give us its length, its width and its height. They are all uh, 12,000 stadia, which roughly translates as somewhere between 14 and 1500 miles. In other words, the city is described as a very large cube. And the fact that it was a cube would have been significant, especially uh, to any Jewish uh, believers, any Jewish readers of this letter. Because there is another cube in the First Testament that was really important to the people of God. It was the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary of the temple. The measurements of the city, therefore, are a symbolic way of saying that the new Jerusalem is the new Holy of Holies, that there is no need to have a temple because the city itself is the holy of holies. The city of self is is the temple. As verse 22 says, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You know, in ancient Israel, only the high priest could enter the holy of holies. And even then, only once a year on Yom Kippur. In the renewed creation, we will not need a priest to access the holy of holies on our behalf. Rather, we will live in the Holy of Holies because of the work on the cross of our great High Priest, Jesus. In verse 23, we are told that in the new creation there is no need for the sun or the moon. Now we need to read that carefully. It doesn't say there will be no sun or moon in the new creation. It says there will be no need for them. Of course, we need the light of the sun to see by day and the light of the moon to see by night. 
but the new creation will be filled with the light of the glory of God because God will be present there with his people and his glory will illuminate the city and the Lamb will be its light. That that phrase reminds us of John's description of his first vision at the beginning of this letter, his first vision of Jesus. When he sees Jesus, he says that his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. They will not need the light of the sun and the moon because the light of the glory of God and of Jesus will fill the new creation. In verse 25, we're told that in the new creation there will be no closed gates. In four groups of three, John describes 12 gates around the city, each one facing one of the four corners of the earth and each one bearing the name of the tribe of Israel and each gate guarded by an angel. He also tells us that the gates of the city will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there. On the one hand, this serves to underscore the fact that the New Jerusalem is illuminated by the glory of God in fulfilment of Isaiah 68.11. However, as Beale notes, the absence of night emphasises the fact that the redeemed will be unhindered in having access to God's glorious presence. God's presence does not fully dwell in the fallen creation because evil resides there. The divine glory is now completely manifested in the new creation because there will be no more darkness or evil in the new world. Finally, if we jump forward to Revelation 22 and verse 3, it tells us that in the new creation no longer will there be a curse upon anything. And two things are in view here. Firstly, this takes us back to the prophecy of Zechariah 14.11, which speaks of a future time when Jerusalem will be filled, safe at last, never again to be cursed and destroyed. The prophecy referred to the people of Israel having been destroyed because of their sin and, uh, and the city being destroyed as well. And Zechariah had lived through such destruction. But he prophesied of a time when a purified Jerusalem and a purified people would be set free from the curse of destruction. So here we have a picture of the people of God purified from their sin and therefore set free from the curse that sin brought about and and the destruction that it brought about. And that takes us back to Genesis chapter 3. Following Adam and Eve's disobedience and sin, God pronounces three curses. Firstly, he cursed the serpent, the devil. Then he cursed the woman. And then he cursed the man. The primary result of their sin was a broken relationship between God and humans. Whereas they'd lived in the Garden of Eden with God, walking with them in the cool of the day, now they are banished from his presence, banished from the Garden of Eden. However, it also led to brokenness between the man and the woman. And their relationship is forever broken because of their sin. And also between humanity and creation. Man's work on the earth is now a toil. The earth is not going to willingly yield its bounty, but man has to toil and sweat for it. Most strikingly, perhaps, the curse led to death itself. For as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And and what's in view there is both physical and spiritual death. But thank God that in the same breath, Paul says, but, he says, the wages of sin is death, but, but the free gift of God 
is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Beale puts it this way when he writes, The curse of physical and spiritual death set on the human race by Adam in the first garden is permanently removed by the lamb in the last garden at the time of the new creation. In primeval time, humanity was expelled from the garden sanctuary and its entrance thereafter closed to sinful humanity. At the end of time, the redeemed will be ushered into the open gates of that sanctuary again as a result of the Lamb's work. The various physical sufferings and sorrows associated with the fallen condition of humanity to which even the redeemed are susceptible will be entirely removed and no longer pose a threat in the new order. Therefore, the removal of the curse includes elimination of both physical and spiritual evils. You know, there's, there's a popular idea today that everyone will get to heaven either because we're all basically good um, or because God is good and will forgive us and just let us in. But such an idea is wishful thinking. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Christopher Rowland has written that the vision of Revelation chapter 21 confronts us not so much with relief that everything will turn out well in the end, but with the reality that things here and now are profoundly unwell and that repentance and change of life are required. Lest there be any doubt about this uncomfortable truth, this chapter ends with a statement of fact about the new creation that may serve as a warning to some. That nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practice, practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life will enter into that new creation. So, is your name written there? If you are unsure, then I urge you today, right now, make sure by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ and pledging your allegiance to him and living in obedience to his commands. Make sure before it's too late.